This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here at Asia Torah overlooking the Temple Mount live from Jerusalem. I don't have anything to say particularly, so, so what do you guys want from me? I'm happy to share. I mean, yeah, the meaning of life. Yeah, the meaning of life. Two men and women? <laughs> Tips for good communication between men and women. He wanted the, the meaning of life to be like Neckemeyer, but. <laughs> meaning of life. Good communication. Can I throw something out? We already did, and we got dreams. Can I throw something else in? Yeah. What's the deal with the Kabbalah Center? Kabbalah Center? The center, yeah. Kabbalah Center. Uh, my question is, what is God? Okay. <laughs> I think I can handle all these. We'll do like five minutes each. Yeah. What? Um, Lubavitch and Mashiach. Oh, wow. That's a hot <laughs> uh, I'm going to call it Chabad for short. I don't know how to spell Lubavitch. Chabad Mashiach. Everyone else got burning topic? Okay, so let, let's see how much we can nail these. Um, we're going to start with the meaning of life. So, the meaning... Oh, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Anyone else got a subject? Burning subjects? Okay. All right. Oh, yeah, what do you got here? Could be just an information question like, have you ever seen a grown man naked? <laughs> have you ever been in a Turkish prison? Okay, go ahead. Uh, like, how do, uh, like, you know, uh, how to find, like, a mentor or something? Mentor? How to find the right rabbi, let's say. Uh, I told you that's on YouTube. Oh, that's right. Oh, no. Write it down. No, I wrote it down on YouTube. Finding a rabbi. Not right. That's why I have to question. I forgot to look it up. You know why I did that class on YouTube? Someone hired me to. Just kidding. So, the, um, which is also true, but the, I, I, why I'm happy it's there is it's such an important subject and I do an hour-long exhaustive treatment of mentors why mentors and how do you find a mentor that you can trust who's not coming in with his own agendas and control and stuff like that you know uh, speaking of speaking of that just say one more thing is that you know it says that Abraham and Sarah were teaching all this time and they like they had followers they had all these followers but later, you don't hear a single thing about a follower. They're gone. Like, everything turns into a story about Isaac. Well, what happened to all the followers? So, it says that he was such a good leader that a true leader doesn't create followers. A true leader creates leaders. A true leader inspires others. And he inspires within them independence, autonomy. And that's a true leader. Whereas leaders that create followers are not true leaders. And, uh, and um, there's no word in Hebrew for the word follower, which is fascinating. Anytime Hebrew doesn't have a word, you know it's a human fabrication. It's not part of reality. You get that? There's no, if there's no word in Hebrew for something, like, for example, the word vacation. We don't have a word for that. We use a word in Hebrew. We call it chofesh, but chofesh does not mean vacation. It just means free. Free. But and, and Spanish has the most clear word for vacation. Anyone know how to say vacation in Spanish? Vacaciones. Say it louder. Vacaciones. Nah, that's the word vacation. Yeah. Oh, wait, no, there's another word I was looking for. Yeah, like going away. It's diversi. I you said? Diversi. Diversi. What is diversion? Diversion. Uh, but that's having fun. Yeah, sorry, fun. 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 
There's, uh, I don't think there's a word in Hebrew for fun. There's okay. modern Hebrew. Uh, I don't think there's an ancient word of, you know. And Abraham and Sarah were having fun. So, now there is different words about joy, meaning uh, laughing and stuff. But fun is just not a regular word. But Spanish is amazing, because you know what the word is in, for fun in Spanish? Because it really, like, hits your, like, it hits the bullseye. Diversion. Meaning you're supposed to be doing this, you're doing that, having a good time, as opposed to actually taking responsibility for yourself. So, so fun is diversion in Spanish. Okay, let's go. Meaning of life. So um, we're going to nail each one. The meaning of life. The whole point of your entire life. Has, it's, first of all, it's multi-leveled. We don't have time to treat all of them. Multi-level, but the the meaning of life vis-a-vis, since we're in yeshiva, the meaning of life vis-a-vis why you're here, the reason why you're here is to have a relationship with God. You are meant to have a relationship with God. How you get that done is, you know, it's, there's, the pres- there's prescribed ways of doing it as a Jew. There's also personal ways of doing it. But your whole point of life is your relationship with God. That is it. How do we know that? Who can prove it to me from Parshas Noah or Parshas Vayera, the last Parsha? What happens if a whole community of people lose the meaning of life? Meaning, meaning their relationship with God's over. They, they, they don't care about God anymore. He's out. They collectively sin. They get destroyed. They get destroyed. So, meaning God just pulls the plug. Generation Noah, no one's interested in God, pulls the plug. Sodom and Amalah, where, which were Sodom and Amorah, which were, you know, where people were involved in all kinds of stuff. That's why it's called Sodom from the word sodomy. Yeah? The, uh, God pulls the plug on the place. So therefore, what's the meaning of life? Meaning of life is, is your relationship with God. That's what makes life meaningful. You have a meaningful relate. You have a, have a connection to God. Your life has meaning. Well, what's that supposed to mean, Rabbi? That's a very religious perspective. That meaning of life only is a relationship with God. Well, what's the alternative? <laughs> what's the alternative? You finding, uh, I don't know, uh, weaving baskets meaningful? Okay, on a subjective level, sure. If that's what makes life meaningful, or maybe it's fast cars, or maybe it's feeling important in the eyes of, of, of women, you know, maybe that's meaningful to you. You know, or maybe a woman feeling uh, that, that men look at her more than the girl sitting next to her. If that gives you meaning, great. But that's very subjective. That's, there's nothing true about that. That's just your own little existential subjective meaning you're making. But that is not the meaning of life. That's the meaning of perhaps of your life. And it's very important if you are going to use a subjective meaning of life, meaning you're not going to come from a Torah perspective, if you're going to go for the subjective meaning of life, Make sure it's something that lasts forever. Because, for example, the boy-girl chase thing, well, once you're married, that's not going to be a very good meaning of life. That's going to create a lot of problems if that's your meaning of life. But how many young people, that is the meaning of life. Well, then what's your life mean once you're married? I guess nothing. Unless you want to keep playing that game. But if you're playing that game, your marriage isn't going to go very smoothly. So... Subjective meaning in life is fine. I also, I get a lot of meaning out of certain things. Craft beer, extreme sports, music. Like, that's cool. You want, you want to make meaning out of those things? That's wonderful. But it's subjective. It's temporal. Good luck surfing at night. It's time bound. So those things are like, you want subjective meaning in life? That's fine. I, I do it. But I have it in perspective. Whereas, when your meaning of life is your relationship with the with Creator, so you you now have a very permanent and objective reality that's that's beyond you, and will last forever. Just to give it a story before we move on to the next one, is imagine there was once a lab scientist who worked with rats, and he has to run all kinds of tests for the other professors and whatever. And one day he comes in the lab and he hears, he hears one of the rats <coughs> talking. He just keeps hearing this, hello. He's like, hello. And he's looking around, who's saying hello? You know, it's eight in the morning. There's no one around. He's drinking his coffee, getting ready for this experiment. Hello. He finally looks down. He sees one of the rats is like this. And he's like, hello. How are you? Fine. How are you? Great. 
And next you know, he's a little friend. And there's his little friend. And But in the end, it was 9 a.m. finally, and it was time to start the things. Now, what's he going to do with that rat? He's going to put it in the maze with all the other rats. He's got no choice. He's got That's what he does. But the difference between that rat and all the other rats is that rat, when he bumps into a wall that the, that the, the lab... Uh, what do you call a guy who works in a lab? Lab rat? What? Researcher. When the researcher, when he hits the wall, what does the rat do? It goes like this. Mm-hmm. You got me. And the, and the professor's like... And then he makes it through a few things, and the lab rat's like, two thumbs up. And the, and the researcher's like, nice. And then when the rat finally runs through the finish line, he's doing Olympic salutes. So the, the professor's like, bravo! says the researcher. So we're all going to run the rat race, all of us. You have no choice, meaning in the end you're going to have to go out there and make a living, every one of you. You got to go out there and do it. So you can do it with a relationship to the researcher or you can do it with no relationship. Most people are just running around the maze without a real relationship at all to the, to the, the one who's put the obstacle there who's set up, who's celebrating your victories, who's also feeling your defeat when your nose has hit a wall. Uh, Good communication between men and women. Um, I mean, I don't know why you're asking me that question. Meaning, are you thinking that I have good communication with my spouse? Um, I mean, I'm married 24 years. Seem to be going pretty strong. So, uh, do I have anything to say about good communication? Uh, Men should shut up when being attacked. Um, Women should attack less ferociously. Um, Better to wait for your husband to eat dinner before you attack. Like, let the poor guy, let the poor guy sit down first. Don't get him at the threshold of that. You know, don't get him in the doorway. You know, let him eat something. Um, a hungry man is an angry man. Um, other good communications. Know their language of love. Give them their language, not yours. And stop trying to expect your language of love from someone who keeps giving you his just realize that he's giving you his language of love. Though it may not be yours, what he's really saying is I love you through his language. You guys know the five languages of love? Words, touch, words, gifts, touch, quality, time, and service. So if his whole way of showing love is doing things for you, which is service, that's the way he communicates love. But you don't. You're like much more of a words, touch person. So if he's giving words and uh, sorry, if he's giving service, realize, hear hear the words because you're a words person. Hear the words I love you when they're doing service. Stop getting upset that he never says I love you because he's not from that world. For his world, in his world, talk is cheap. Actions speak louder than words. In your world, you're just waiting to hear the words because whatever your family was very expressive, Californian or something. They actually say what they feel. You know, and they don't do anything for you. You know, because it's more narcissistic in the West Coast. So people are not so much in service, they're much more in words. What other pieces of advice and communication I can give you? Um, Nothing else. I hope you appreciated those. Um, and just for the men, just to make it real clear that, that uh, you, when, you're, when you will be married, your wife will attack you at least once a month. And if she's pregnant, for nine months. So you will be attacked. And, and whenever any person's attacked, what happens is you go into fight or flight mode, which is really going to flight mode. If you're from, you're in good shape because you get to go to Mincha for like three hours. Okay? You always have the davening excuse to get out of the house. And, and if you've already davened, you can go to the bathroom with a smartphone for 
45 minutes to an hour until you get sore. But the, anyway, so you got, you've got a, you, you've got how to escape this. Okay, that's flight. And, and now if she, now the only reason she attacks is because she's feeling insecure. That's what you need to know. Whenever a woman feels insecure. When the guy feels insecure? He does not attack, no. When a guy feels insecure, he gets kind of quiet. You got it. And a woman needs to kind of pull it out of him so that she can figure out where he is on the GPS and then give him some strength, support him. Men, on the other hand, get attacked when she's feeling insecure. Now, you might be wondering, why, why attack? If you're feeling insecure, you walk up to your husband and you say, I'm feeling kind of insecure right now. I could use a little extra support. Doesn't that make sense, men? Wouldn't that be a little more smart? But this isn't, it's not like that. They, they're, they're temporarily insane. And what's happening is they feel like they're being ripped down a river and Niagara Falls is about 100 yards away. So they're frantically looking for a rock, a branch, something to hold on to before they go flying down Niagara Falls to their death. <coughs> so they're searching for something to hold on to. Well, I don't know why she would think this, but she thinks it might be you. <laughs> Which is a real joke in 2018, that the man's going to be the strong one here. But somehow, we're the strong one in your little tidy pants and booty and purple socks and dainty mannerisms. You know, like some man you are. You know, you're a girly man. But the... Um, Anyway, but for some reason she thinks her girly man is, is the man now. But how does she know? You know, she sees a couple sticks going over the river. Some are thicker, some are thinner. She starts grabbing at things to see which one's strong. Well, what's a great way to find out what a man's made of? Yeah, attack him. Attack him. See if he can shut up and just stand there like a king. And take it, not even really listening to you. She doesn't want you to believe anything she's saying. She's just checking if you can stand there. Can you just stand there and just hold your ground while she tries to blow you over and knock you silly and, and hit you in all your softest, most vulnerable places? She's just trying to see if you can hack it. Can you hack it? If you can hack it, we'll talk about that in a minute. But what she's, all she wants to see is if, can you hack it? Can you not go to Mincha for three hours? Can you not go to the bathroom for 45 minutes? Can you actually stand? And then, of course, what does a man do if he already davened and he went to the bathroom? What does he do? She's just touched your most vulnerable spots. It's cruel. It's, it's really vicious. It is abuse. It's verbal abuse, really. Now, what do 2018 girly men do? They start to cry. <laughs> You know, they, I mean, but in history, they fight. Today, they, they'll, they'll, they'll start crying. They'll say, we need to go to a therapist. And then, and then, because they need, like, a place to really cry. And, of course, she's going, see? I'm married to a girl. Yeah? And the therapist's like, I see what you mean. <laughs> He's thinking, like, yeah, this will be the best. You know, I'm going to cry in front of the therapist. The therapist's going to tell her you're being cruel. This is what is going on out there. I'm telling you, this is what everyone's doing in their marriages. He's just crying away. Do not cry. Okay, that's out. Do not cry. I'm not saying ever. I'm just saying in this circumstance, you do not cry and stay away from therapists. I mean, you want a therapist, go yourself. Don't go with her. You'd be in big trouble you go with her. Never go to a therapist with a woman. Yeah. That's like total setup. And, yeah, and don't go near a therapist with a woman. And the, I mean, if it's court ordered, if it's court ordered, you know what you say? You say, you say, okay. Obviously, I have to agree. It's court ordered, and nothing I can do. But I will. I'm holding out till you can get me a therapist who has a ninety percent success rate. <laughs> no, it's a divorce factory. The therapist. So, so there's no such therapist. But you say, listen. I'm happy to go. Just show me someone with a track record. What? I stopped. I stopped ever since I met Neckemeyer. <laughs> Neckemeyer was so much better than me in couples. 
that, uh, and he never meets the woman. He was so much better than me. And I have no divorces over decades. Meaning I gave up, I don't know, maybe fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year in, in working with couples. I gave that up. You know why? Because I'm that honest. And I don't mean to brag, but I couldn't look myself in the mirror knowing that there's someone better that I could have just deferred to and he would have done a better job with the couple. So I, ne I never saw another couple. I mean, I'll see them and then like pull the guy aside later and say like, you need to talk to this Negemeyer. Don't let your wife know. And they talk to Negemeyer. He trains them. And that's the end of it. Happily ever after. They live happily ever after together. Now, um, anyway, the reason they attack is they're looking for a rock. Your job is to be that rock. If you flight or if you fight, you turned their insecurity into serious insecurity. I Meaning you're just a slippery, mossy rock that she just slipped off of and went down Niagara Falls. Or you're a branch that just came right out. And she's now going down Niagara Falls with a stick. So, so your job is not to flight and not to fight. It is merely to allow her to express her little male test. It's a little man test. And if you succeed the man test, her whole world just turns like right side up. She feels so powerful and so in her space that the next thing you know, you're eating an omelet with freshly squeezed orange juice. And there is even those who theorize that what's really happening, think about it now, let's go like a little more, let's go a little more instinctual like animal behavior here because we are ultimately animals with souls. Let's go more animalistic. When is female most looking for male in the animal kingdom? When she's ovulating. Yeah, when something's going on there. There's something she wants. She's looking for the male, male you know, counterpart of her species. Well, isn't that interesting? That women start feeling insecure and then attack to check manhood. Now, most idiot men, which is most men, so let's just call them most idiots, most idiots say to themselves, in this situation in their marriages, they're like, well, guess we'll be taking a few days off if this is the way she's treating me. Meaning this is definitely not the time. Well, according to nature, it definitely is the time. The question is, can you be a man when you're getting attacked? If the answer is yes, this is the time. If the answer is no, you're right. It's going to be a few days off. Peter's smiling. You ever thought you'd hear such stuff? This is important stuff I'm telling you and no one knows it. And I'm more happy to be saying it on live feed. And that's going to hit Tor any time. Because it's going to help a lot of people out there and who are in their marriages and their wife can't even smell them anymore. Just one more thing just to add. I apologize if you've heard me say this a million times. But since feminism started, women love being in control. They love the power. It's exciting for them. And the men love being girlies. So it more or less works, male and female. She's the guy, he's the girl which is pretty fun at the beginning of marriage and first years and stuff. But what happens is, you know how men go through like a couple, like major changes? Like, for example, puberty is huge for men. Girls are like girls, and now they're like kind of women, but they're still girls. Boys go from boys to men. Their voice changes. Think, what's a little boy? He's really a girl. I have a little eight-year-old. I mean, he would just hug you till you turn blue. You know, he just wants to snuggle... And he wants to be held, he wants to be supported, he wants to talk, 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 talk. He's just a girl. <laughs> but he's going to have to become a man. That's a major transition. It's a major transition to go from boy to man. And you want to know something freaky? Were you the guy who wanted to buy my bike? Yeah, that was you. It's finally pro officially for sale. I just got to figure out how much it's worth. Anyway, boys have to become men. And you want to know something? Unless you're the exception, every guy in this room is doing everything he can to not transition into a man. Everything he can. He is fighting the world to stay a boy.
You know, ancient cultures didn't, they did not tolerate such business. By the time you were 13, you were, if you were Native American, maybe you were thrown in a hole for half a year, get to know yourself down there. You were brought out into the wilderness, first by the tribe, they bless you, then your immediate family for another couple miles, they bless you, and then you go with your father for like another couple days, and then he blesses you. He knows how to get back, you don't. It's going to take you weeks and months, if not years, to find your way back. And if you make it back, you're a man. And if you get eaten by a bear, well, the tribe can at least say one thing. There's no boys over the age of 14 hanging around. Because ain't nobody got time for that. Nobody needs a boy over the age of 14 in their world. It is a taxation on society that is only bad. No offense to having this guy held you. No offense having a 22-year-old coming here with a skateboard. But I've got three. And I surf and I mountain bike. And I still party really hard. So, now, but I'm, I'll admit it and you'll admit it. We did not grow up in a society that transitioned us. We were never transitioned. What? I transitioned. You're a man? Yep. Well, I'm a man, but it took me forever. I, I only transitioned a couple of years ago, really. How'd you transition? Uh, wrestling. Nice. Wow. That's powerful. But you still ride a skate. Oh, yeah. I still do, too. Yeah. Anyway, the, um, but the, we live in a society that doesn't transition us anymore. The only world that transitions you is the Haredi world. And the Jewish, Jewish tradition, meaning all ancient traditions have, have, a, have a rite of passage. But the only left, the only last vestige, and it's not much, of transition is the Haredi world. The reason I say it's not much is because the kids aren't transitioning anymore. They're just not transitioning. They just, they get home, they rip off their hat and coat, and they're kicking balls outside with all the kids. Never happened before. Meaning, meaning, meaning if you right now had a 20, you were, let's say my age and you had a 20 year old, he'd be watching the 15 year old kicking balls in the street, just going like, what the hell's wrong with this kid? Except who are all the other kids out there? Other 15-year-olds and 14-year-olds. and But no one above 15 did that. Meaning it, it transitioned. to Meaning the, the, our, even our society that had that rite of passage has lost its rite of passage. Scary thought. And I still have a kid who's eight. I have a 15-year-old playing ball with little kids. And I have an eight-year-old. And a 21-year-old scratching his head. Going like, what the hell's wrong with these kids? Or at least the 15-year-old. But all of them are out there. So we don't know what we're going to do. And we're supposed to get them married. Because you realize once you have lots of kids, you have no choice but to get them out. Who can afford? You know, if you have your 1.2 kid, okay, maybe you can afford him into his 30s. Once you have eight kids, you must move them to marriage or you will go bankrupt. You've got to marry each one of those kids off. You must get them out. Get out. Get out. And you want to get them out early. You also want to protect them because you're the one getting them out, which means you better have some good schara. Meaning you better have some good, uh, good, uh, how do you say, the goods, the, you better have some good schara. I don't know how to say it. Good merchandise. You better be protecting your daughters. And you better also be protecting your sons because you're the one getting them out. They're not getting themselves out. You're moving them into marriage. So you better be on, way on top of things. And you better move them out earlier than later because they can get in a lot of trouble and ruin their saleability like that. So what are we gonna, what is the Haredi world going to do with these chumps? What are they going to do with these chumps who refuse to transition now? Because you still have, if the marriages is not changing, you've got to get them out. So what are you going to do with that chump? who never transitioned, because you can't marry a boy off to a woman. Although, I don't know, a Western Civ seems to be doing it. So. But, but the problem is they're in their 30s by the time they can figure out how to get married. Meaning, girly man takes a long time to get married. He gets married at late, at, at earliest late 20s, yeah. Girly man. How 
did we get on this subject? Where, where, how do we get over here? I don't know. What are we doing here? No, but are we, no, because I want to button it up. I, so, can someone tell me how I got to this subject? No, no, I don't mean the very, very beginning. I mean some street later on. Yeah. Yeah, the millennial things to go in there, and anyway, it's taxing on society. It's it's creating a lot of depression, and uh, people are jumping off bridges. Okay, end of subject. <laughs> dreams. So um, we're gonna just talk a little bit about dreams because I'm not like I used to talk a lot on dreams, but I'd always leave feeling like a bluffer because I was totally talking the periphery of every Kabbalistic thing I'd ever heard, but never quite studied properly. So I can't really speak with authority on dreams. And if you've ever heard me speak on authority on dreams, I apologize for being a bluffer. <coughs> now, um, the, there's a couple things we do know about dreams, and one of them is they're one-sixtieth of prophecy. So if you have a dream that's, uh, it, that is bringing, it's like a misfortune, it's not a good thing. So there's a dream amelioration that you read in front of people. It's in the art scroll sitter. Um, to, to fix the dream. Um, there are, um, I've actually, I have, I've had the privilege of meeting people who prophesize dreams, had prophetic dreams. Uh, I even had a student who, from the West Coast, who dreamed all of 9-11, the day of 9-11. Well, he, no, he woke up on the West Coast. He woke up, he saw the entire thing, both buildings, everything we saw in the news, I don't know if you guys were alive, but everything we saw on the news, I was actually here on the phone talking to the manager of a band who's, they're my band when I'm in New York. And we, we have a gig, by the way, in Brighton Beach for the Russians on the 17th of uh, November. It's like a couple weeks. Anyway, talking to the manager and he just goes like, he's in Miami at the time. He's like, oh my God. I'm like, what? He's like, oh my God, what? He's like, there's been a plane crash. I'm like, yeah? He's like, the world trades it. I'm like, what? I was overlooking the hotel, just having a talk, conversation about some band, you know, band dynamics. Bands are like marriages, you know, they're full of issues. So. Most of them can't even stick together. And uh, anyway, so then I'm walking into town, still counseling it. I mean, we gave up on the plane crash. We're, I'm counseling him. I'm halfway up Ben Yehuda Street. I don't know why I wasn't on my bike that day, but I'm walking up Ben Yehuda Street. And then I hear, oh my God. I'm like, what? Oh my God. We're under attack. <laughs> like, you real. Like, he put it together. And I'm like, what? And I pulled up to a kiosk conveniently right there and got to watch, you know, CNN on, on Ben Yehuda Street. Um, anyway, but this guy woke up after it all in like Long Beach, California, having the entire dream of everything that happened in 9-11. Crazy. He got it all. The other freak, he was really freaked out. He came to talk to me and he said, he said, there's just one more thing. I dreamt of a tsunami that wiped out all of Orange County, which is a gigantic population in Southern Los Angeles. That's very low lying, low lying with the ocean. He had a dream that entire, but that never happened. And this conversation happened in 2002, I think. So I think we're good. Um, anyway, uh, that's something about dreams. Do you have a specific question about dreams? Besides your idea of adding 60 up and maybe now you're a prophet? Not okay, any, moving on. Not anything specific. No. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what's the sleep paralysis? Oh, uh, not sleep paralysis. Vivid dreaming. Uh, lucid dreaming. But sleep paralysis itself. Yeah, lucid dreaming is is when your body feels paralyzed, but you actually suddenly, like, you have a joystick in the dream. You get to actually be fully conscious in the dream state. Raise your hand if you ever got to have a lucid dream. Wow, a lot of you. It's so fun. It's amazing. Your body feels totally paralyzed. When you finally realize you're asleep, you can't move your body for a while. You, know, you notice that? Your legs are totally stuck. It's weird. But the, uh, I wonder what the correlation is. Why is that correlated with, with paralysis? Uh, it's a different thing. Sleep paralysis. No, I don't mean sleep paralysis. Why is, why is lucid dreaming correlated with the feeling that you're paralyzed? 
when you get in the when you're back. No pain. It's just you can't move your feet. It takes you like a few minutes to move your. What? Yeah, but when people come back, they can't move. A lot of times, so sleep paralysis is if you wake up, but your body still doesn't. Yeah, I've had lucid dreams without paralysis. Oh yeah, you wake up, your body doesn't. I feel like I have sleep paralysis every morning, personally. <laughs> and some people they'll have sleep paralysis with their eyes open, and they'll see like talks about in the Torah too. Whatever. Well, that's cool. Okay, just uh, the Kabbalah Center. It was a money-making, Kabbalah is a money-making Kabbalah cult that is uh, not a dangerous cult at all, just more of a money-maker, and uh, with a good intention. The good intention is that they believe that the Kabbalah is the answer to the world's problems, and the truth is they're right. It's just that Kabbalah has always had a more hidden, protected place, and what happened is some guy who is going to make a lot of money and did make a lot of money by the name of Somethingberg, Somethingberg, I forget his first name. Um, anyway, this Berg, who was originally a rabbi, he was actually, interestingly, the student of Rabbi Brandwine of the old city of Jerusalem, who I, was someone, a colleague of mine, not a colleague, but like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to call myself a colleague of Rabbi Brandwine, but a high-level Kabbalist, who, you know, I've daven with him many times. He had a wife, uh, Berg had a wife, and uh, I think six or seven kids forget how many, and when suddenly he fell in love with his secretary, and the two of them made a Kabbalah cult, and he left his wife totally in the lurch, all his kids turned into abandoned, and went on to make a Kabbalah cult, completely abandoning his observant wife and children. Yeah, you knew any of this? Yeah, you can just Google it, I mean, it's, I don't know if it's really lush and hard, because the guy's, bit, you know, on the public side, meaning this is all... This is not, this is totally public knowledge. Um, anyway, left his wife and kids in the lurch, which obviously means, you know, slime, slime ball. And, um, and then he had one little issue, and that is you're not allowed to teach Gentiles Kabbalah. So how are you supposed to create a Kabbalah cult if you can't have wealthy, wealthy Gentiles pay, you know, good amounts of money per class? How are you supposed to ever get the thing off the ground? Well, conveniently, he had a dream. And the dream was God telling him that now you're allowed to teach Gentiles. What a convenient dream. And so with his dream that now you're allowed to teach Gentiles, he opened the Kabbalah Center. And there at the Kabbalah Center, you can meditate and wear white and, and chill learning Kabbalah. Now, does this sound like I'm into it or not into it? Wrong. Well, I can't say I'm into it. That was the wrong word. Does this sound like I'm pro or against? I can't. Wrong. I am so happy about the Kabbalah Center. I feel really bad for the wife and kids. I think that was a lousy thing to do, and I think he's going to, like, you know, he's going to, I don't know what he's going to deal with when he gets to the next world, but it ain't going to be pretty, okay? Because he, he blew the major job of a man's life, and that is your wife and children. So he blew that. However... I am all the more excited to know that there's more Torah in the world, even if it's the Torah that's not supposed to be learned. You know how many people I've met who read a Kabbalah Center thing that they got dragged to, and it did turn them on, and they woke up to Hashem, and then they wanted more learning, and they went online, and they found Eshador or Zemeh or Chabad or whatever, and they like just kept growing and growing and growing. Have, you, have any of you ever met someone who became observant eventually, because they, but they originally were turned on by the Kabbalah Center? Nobody? So I, I have the, you know, I've got years and years of outreach. I've got to meet many people like that. And I also have not met many people who lost anything as a result, except for a lot of money. They've maybe lost a lot of money, but other than that, they've only gained out of their relationship with the Kabbalah Center. They did a lot of Jewish meditation. They've learned a lot about secrets of the world and a lot about Hashem. They've also had quasi-Shabbats. Maybe, meaning, meaning these are people who never would have had Shabbat. Now, I'm not saying they had a halachic Shabbat. I'm not saying they didn't do malacha. I'm sure they were doing malacha. But they at least had their first introductions to Shabbat. To me, that's all positive. So how they went about it, abandoning his wife and kids, having a dream that, you know, suddenly the rule of not teaching Kabbalah to, to uh, Gentiles, you know, that's all bad stuff, but... In the end, I see it as positive. 
and uh, and so it gets one thumb up. How does he? Yeah, one thumb up. Hey, you need to go, Peter. You can go. Um, is it four o'clock? Yeah. It's exactly four o'clock. The other ones I'm going to do real fast. Um, what is God? Who is that? Who has one? Okay, you ready for this? So God is nothing. Okay? Because before there was something, what was there? Nothing. nothing. What does nothing make? When you have absolutely nothing, what does it make? Nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing makes nothing. Always. Okay. Without exception. When you have nothing, you don't expect nothing from it. Okay? So, because nothing comes from nothing. Okay? So before there was something, there was nothing. And since nothing makes nothing, and now that there's something, and there's now a world, well, it must be that nothing was God. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But it, but it seems to be capable of making something. So that nothing knows how to make worlds. Okay, that's good. And it not only has, knows how to make worlds, it knows how to make very complex worlds. But it doesn't just expand the universe, it also contracts it. And usually expanding things create chaos. chaos. But this one seems to have an order to it. And the name of God that's chaotic is Yud and Hein Vav and Hei Hashem. That's expansion. The word that, that causes order is called Shin Dalad Yud. She Dai. That it's enough. Meaning, enough expansion. Like, you're going to have a mess if you don't start contracting the expansion. And that's what's on mezuzahs. Shin Dalad Yud. So, so you are ultimately serving whatever this being is. It's not made of anything. The right. only reason we call it God is, listen, if you could pull off something for nothing, we'll call you God. It only gets the name out of default. It's like, you, got, you managed to make something from nothing, well, you get the title God. He's the only being that ever is able to do that. No one's ever been able to do it. It doesn't really exist at all that nothing, something comes from nothing. But the second any of you guys discover something from nothing, we're going to start calling you God. But it's only happened once. And that one time, because anything you make today is from something. Everything's something from something. Everything's cause and effect in the entire creation. No matter where you look, it is something from something. So since we once had a something from nothing, he gets that title. Well, since he's the source of the something, and I'm one of the somethings, so I'm going to give my pledge of allegiance to the nothing that created the something. That's all. Yeah, so, so we are told, so what we just handled was the first of the Ten Commandments, that there is a God. Now the second of the Ten Commandments is what? Is not to, not to give any, not to give any power or source to anything but God. Okay? Now, you need the sun, but who made the sun? Is the sun a means or an end? It's a, no, it's a means. It's a means to give warmth, photosynthesis for the trees, give us a gravitational pull. That's always helpful when you're on the earth to have something to gravitate around. Okay? So we've got the sun. It's a means or an end, everybody. A means. Idol worship is making the means the end. So people who worship the sun are transgressing the one of the Ten Commandments, which is making the means the end. The sun did not make the world. Now, I once met a Japanese doctor who was sent to America uh, on Japanese government's money to study f- next to some of the greatest radiologists at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles. In other words, a genius. So I asked her, so what religion are you? She says, I'm a Shinto. That's our religion in Japan. I said, oh, great. So do you believe in God? She says, oh, we, yeah, yeah, we believe in many gods. <laughs> I'm like, really? And I'm looking over at the head of cardiology. He's, we're sitting together. The head of cardiology who runs the entire area, and this Japanese, you know, what do you call that? Apprentice, I guess. And, uh, and so I look over to him, kind of like, real genius. So she, but it gets better. So I said, so who made those gods? And she looks at me and she says, oh, yeah, yeah. One god made those gods. And I'm like, oh, okay, not bad. I said, so what do you call the one god? She says, the sun. <laughs> I look back at the head of cardiology. <laughs> Something wrong here? Like, like, you know, like, what happened to our genius? And that just shows you that you can be smart and not wise. 
I'd prefer a wise person. If I have to sit on a chairlift skiing this winter next to a wise person or a smart person, I'll take a wise person any day over a smart person. Because she was smart, but she was not wise. Now, the... Anyway, but the you get the point? I mean, the What's your real question? Because I was a little shocked you brought up the sun. I mean, that, that was out of the blue. Because it seems like you're worshipping more of a concept than an actual being. You're worshipping this concept of creation. Not the concept of creation, concept of creator. The concept of a creator. creator but of creator. A creator implies... What? That, that uh, something caused it? Like, caused what? Caused creation. creation like yeah, he's called the creator. But you can't have a creator if there was nothing. And if it's we, not, then we don't understand what it is, but it, it, something came from nothing, and that nothing obviously knows what it's doing. It's got... Con- so it is conscious. Oh, yeah. Big time. Well, think of what he made the world out of. If all there was was God, what did he make the world out of? Himself. Himself. That's all there was. Well, what's the world made out of? But isn't consciousness physical? Not really. Not his. Ours is. Your, meaning your consciousness and my consciousness is not physical at all. It doesn't show up in an MRI. You think they'd find your consciousness in an MRI? And all they find is neurons. They just find neurons going... That report to the consciousness. But your consciousness would never be show up in a scientific lab. Not in MRIs, not in brain scans. It's not there. So consciousness is, is, is nothing, meaning it's not made of anything. And God's consciousness is really our consciousness. Well, our consciousness is his consciousness, but meaning he's, his consciousness is infinitely beyond our consciousness. But our consciousness is a portion of him. It's a chilek of him, portion of him. However, the physical world is all made of consciousness because God created the world out of the consciousness. So what's the world made out of? Like, if you make a building out of Lego, what's the building made out of? Lego. If you make a world out of consciousness, which is all there was, well, what's the world made out of? Consciousness. Well, what have they discovered now? That my voice is all digital right now. It's shooting into your mind digitally. Hitting your neurons, which fire or don't fire, which is binary. Fire or don't fire. Billions of things. Firing not firing is digital. Taste is digitized. You know, they have taste totally down to digital now. Sound down to digital. Sight. You've all seen DVDs. Digital. Our entire world is just conscious information it's coagulated consciousness jelloed consciousness so this is our whole world is just consciousness so God is just information, then? no the world's information he's the consciousness no the world's the information it's made of his consciousness but his consciousness will never understand you'll never get him it's like you're saying that God is a design plan he's the planner he's the designer and the executor of the design but the design was designed by consciousness, and now you're saying that the world is made out of consciousness. The world's all made of information that's just coagulated consciousness. What do you mean by coagulated? Meaning, meaning the consciousness itself is is beyond beyond expanse. It's beyond anything your mind could ever consider. But the world is fully considerable. You can consider this bottle. You can think about it. You can scientifically break down the protons, neutrons, electrons of this wood table. So that we're going to call intelligence. It's coming from a consciousness. Right. So consciousness is kind of the plan. If it's coming from a plan... The plan itself is part of the intelligence too. This is what, like, for example, Chabad Chassidus, which is our next subject, Chabad Chassidus, actually goes and, like, does surgery on this discussion, which I've studied. I've taught it here at Aish. I've taught two rounds of the Tanya at Aish before. So I think it is better you and I would go on this. Yeah. rather than get everyone crazy. But yeah, they actually pick it apart to know what, what are the actual distinctions in all this. So I'm speaking them, but it's not really fair. Right. Not fair to everyone, and it's also not fair to us, because, because this is stuff that you sit on, and it's worth sitting on. Okay. It's important. Okay? And meaning important for those who have that in their diet. Some people don't give a darn about any of this stuff. Some people, that's part of their diet in, as Jews. They want to know this stuff. Like, and so I'm one of them. That's big in my diet, actually. I also study Gomorrah and Halacha, but this is a big part of my diet. Now, um, Chabad and Mashiach is... Uh, some people wonder why they went towards Mashiach, this whole Mashiach business. And, and I, I, I imagine the... I, I, I don't feel comfortable discussing this, actually. I, I don't think it's right to talk about. So... Um, and Torah and vegetarianism is, um, 
It's a, it's, a lo- it's a broad subject. Clearly, the Torah says we were vegetarian until the times of Noah. So that was the first ten generations. After that, we were given the right to, to actually kill an animal for food. Um, but we also have laws of humaneness. So it's a bigger issue today, the, um, how we treat animals and birds and chickens. and um, that, that it could be that the right thing to do now is to be vegetarian from a certain perspective. From a deeper Kabbalistic perspective, it's much better to eat animals. Kabbalistically, you're raising it up. Meaning, meaning, meaning. let's say like there's 10 guys walking through the shuk, but one of them's like this super heavy duty, like Rebbe, like Kabbalistic Rebbe. So when they come by the chicken, you know, and everyone's choosing a chicken, let's say the old days where their chicken were alive. You know, so what would happen when they're all walking, those 10 guys are walking by, this one walked by, this one walked by, you know, the chicken are like hiding. They're all like putting their heads and hiding them amongst each other. Don't pick me. Don't pick me. But when the cobblest comes by, all the chickens are like trying to jump out because this guy knows how to get my soul from bird to Jew. He can actually raise me up to Jew by, by slaughtering me halachically. The other nine weren't going to slaughter him halachically. Igor was just going to, I don't know what he was going to eat alive for all I know. Yeah, they're going to slaughter me properly. It's going to be salt on my to get my blood out. It's going to be a bracha made on me. He'll probably use it on Shabbos or even higher. And then in the end, he's going to digest me because his wife knows how to cook. That's why cooking's so important that it's cooked well so that there's a lot of taste buds and you know it's eaten with desire so that it breaks down properly in the stomach. And then it's going to become I'm going to be this Rebbe in a matter of two days. I'm going to be him. So that chicken's like I want. I want out, and I'm going to go out on the back of this particular Rebbe. I'm jumping on, I'm in with this Rebbe. Shalom, everybody. Hope you enjoy. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.